and I live in a society which tells us all the time that bigger is better, that more is not enough, and that you can never be too rich or too thin. We're bombarded on a daily basis with advertisements and television programs that urge us to work harder so that we can gain more of something, be it high-level education degrees or an extra zero on our annual salary or that perfect gizmo that will make one's leisure life complete. And so despite the angels of our better nature, we fall into the lure of believing we need more. And we eat nothing but grapefruit and eggs for weeks on ends in order to lose more weight. We scan the websites from Amazon to Best Buy to find that perfect flat screen high definition television. And we buy yet another modern psychology book to help us understand more why we are the way we are. We live in a culture that tells us that more is better. And so I imagine that when we hear Jesus, the disciples ask Jesus for more faith, we get it. Who among us has not thought, if only my faith were stronger or more confident or deeper or more part of my everyday life, then I could. I presume that every person here has at one time or another asked for more faith. Not only because we're culturally programmed to think that more faith will help us, but also because we truly believe that the more faithful we are, the better our lives will be and the more God will be pleased. It's easy to imagine ourselves asking for more faith, but I have trouble with the disciples asking for more. I mean, after all, of all people, they certainly should have had enough. They were able to see Jesus work miracles on a daily basis. They were there. They heard his preaching and teaching straight from the horse's mouth. They lived in a time before the Enlightenment, when people did not necessarily need to understand in order to believe. And yet the disciples of all people, the disciples of all people, they ask for more faith. And their request arises from some of the difficult words that they just heard Jesus say. He is teaching them as he builds his community of followers. He has instructed them first not to put stumbling blocks in the way of those who are new to the faith. And second, to practice forgiveness on a daily basis, even for the most unrepentant sinner. To which the disciples reply, Lord, increase our faith. And for the disciples, the moral and ethical demands of our faith are hard. 
Christ calls us to live counterculturally, to welcome the poor, to forgive the sinner, to love the enemy, to give up all notions of self-importance. We need a lot of faith to swim against the societal norms of our culture. Increase our faith indeed. But to this request, Jesus makes an interesting response, all the more interesting because of the peculiarity of the Greek grammar. In Greek, there are two kinds of if clauses, one which presumes something is contrary to the fact, in other words, if you had faith of a mustard seed, but you don't, and the second, which presumes something is fact. Jesus here uses the latter, presumed fact, and essentially says, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, and you do, you do, Then you will be able to tell the mulberry bush to jump into a lake, and you'll be able to encourage those new to the faith, and you'll be able to forgive even the most lapsing of sinners. For Jesus, faith is not a matter of degree. We already have enough faith to live out our Christian lives on a daily basis. There's no excuse of waiting until we have enough faith, until we've been adequately prepared, until we understand the more obscure details of the doctrine. This very day, we have enough faith to do what every Christian is called to do. We have enough. Which is really actually quite encouraging, very encouraging, until we get to the next part of the lesson. Sometimes I wish that Jesus had quit while he was ahead, but it was his way to push his followers just when they wanted to rest on their laurels. There is not a person among us who doesn't know that encouragement and thanks are great motivators. Teachers, CEOs, parents, ministers, social workers, managers, volunteer coordinators, all of us know that if a person does his or her job, one sure way to get them back again is to say, Thank you. So we think it should be with the ways that we live out our faith. And yet, Jesus says, as the text continues, why should you expect to be rewarded for doing what you're supposed to do as a person of faith? You've done nothing extraordinary. You've simply done what I've asked you to do. As one of my minister friends has asked, you know, what is the good news in all of this? I think it's so hard for us to accept that Christianity is not about rewards. It's not about getting a better, easier, more carefree life. Christianity is not about feeling good all the time. It's not about accolades. It's not about superiority. In fact, it's not about us at all. Christianity is about what God has done in Jesus Christ. 
about an alternative to reality. It's about reorienting one's life to a different set of standards. It's about being a part of a community, a community that's not bound by time nor place. It's about doing what's expected of us without expecting notice or accolades. It's about loving God and neighbor and self, even and especially when that love costs us something. It's about doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with our God even when, and especially when, our neighbors scorn us for doing so. It's about sharing a feast and bread and wine for no other reason than people are hungry for fellowship and food and spiritual sustenance, and God has provided for us in abundance. So where is the good news in the nose of Jesus that resound in this text from Luke? The good news is everywhere. It's good news that Jesus says no to the demands that the world makes of us. It's good news that we're off the hook. We're off the hook from a sense of needing to earn a reward. It's good news that other Christians will not put stumbling blocks in our way. And it's good news that we will be forgiven even when we have sinned for the umpteenth time. In the year 165, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, a devastating epidemic swept through the Roman Empire. Devastating. Some medical historians suspect that it was the first appearance of smallpox in the West. During the 15-year duration of this epidemic, 15 years, from a quarter to a third of the population of the empire died from it, including Marcus Aurelius himself in the year around 180 in Vienna. Then in the year 251, a new and equally devastating epidemic again swept through the empire, hitting the rural areas as hard as it hit the city. This time it may have been the measles, another disease that can produce a massive mortality rate. Rodney Stark, sociologist, professor at uh, USC and author of The Rise of Christianity, points to these disastrous epidemics as not only a crisis in the ancient world, but a marker a pivotal opportunity for growth in the ancient Christian community. Crisis in the ancient world created opportunity for Christians. When all other faiths of the time were called into question, Christianity provided an explanation and comfort during the two epidemic seasons. Even more important, Christian doctrine provided a prescription for actions. It was the Christians who got to work. It was the Christians who nursed the sick, the Christians who cared for the disease. It was the Christians who buried the dead. Sociologist Stark notes that something distinctive did come into the world with the development of Christianity. The linking of a highly social ethical code with religious belief 
Christians taught that God loves those who love them. In contrast, the empire had learned from Aristotle that a god could feel no love in response to whatever was offered. Equally alien to the paganism of the time, according to historians and Stark, was the notion that because God loves humanity, Christians really cannot please God unless they love one another. Indeed, as God demonstrates his love through sacrifice, humans must demonstrate their love through sacrifice on behalf of one another. And moreover, the Christians, more than any tribe, believed that such responsibilities were to be extended beyond the bonds of family and tribe. Indeed, the Christians believed that they needed to minister to everyone, all those who in every place call upon the name. These were revolutionary ideas in the ancient world. And they still are. Because of their social ethic, obeying the command to minister to anyone and to everyone in need, the Christians saved lives. And while Christian nursing had an impact on the mortality rates in these epidemics, what is particularly striking to sociologist Stark and historian McPhee, other sociologists and modern and ancient historians, Cyprian, the Bishop of Carthage, and Dionysus, the Bishop of Alexandria, it's the immunity of the Christian population during these disastrous epidemics Christians survived, thrived. They attributed that to God's providence and their prayers, the practice of their faith. The Christian community grew in faith and numbers during these seasons of great crisis by conversion because others would say and see it is the Christians that help us. And their love was a compelling witness in that world. The ancient Christians had all the faith they needed to do what was necessary and good, making the divine visible. You know what? It's such good news to know that we already have all the faith that we need. That's good news. We have enough faith to get us through life's bleakest moments. Not that faith will eliminate the burdens that we bear. So whatever trial we face, a terrifying diagnosis, a broken heart, an unnameable anxiety, We already have enough faith to bear that burden. And we have enough faith to help another bear the burden that they carry. It is such good news that you already have all the faith that you need at Knox Presbyterian Church, situated here in this Hyde Park neighborhood of Cincinnati. Whatever the mission to be created, whatever partnership relationships to be nurtured, 
whatever community needs to be supported, whatever initiative to be examined and explored, there's enough. We have enough faith to bring the opportunity to challenge and strengthen and imagine the possibilities before us. We have enough faith right here, right now. Because faith is not about us. Faith is about the power and love of God. Faith is a response to what God has done for us. Faith is a response to do unto others as God has done for us. Faith is limitless and it nullifies the word impossible. So if we have enough faith, and we do, let's imagine the possibilities of what we might accomplish together. Last year in February 2016, I traveled with other Presbyterians in Ohio to visit Presbyterians in Lebanon, quite literally the children children, uh, adults, older adults, who had been raised by the Presbyterian missionaries who were uh, once uh, deployed there. They did things the way the missionaries did them. And our Lebanese Presbyterian brothers and sisters are reminded, surrounded by reminders and refugees of what they call the Syrian crisis. That's how they name it. And as we traveled throughout the corners of Beirut or the village of Minyara, or the agriculture of Zahli in Lebanon. The casualties of the Syrian crisis were nestled in every corner. In the midst of crisis and disaster and overwhelming need, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters would turn to us and they would say, this, this is God's opportunity. Witness this overwhelming need. Look at these hundreds and thousands of adult and child refugees. How much God must love us that God is giving us the opportunity to demonstrate our faith. To feed people, to educate children, to evangelize for our Lord. This is God's opportunity for us. When might this ever happen again? We never heard, we're too old, we don't have enough money, we're tired. I listened for it. But this attitude, this is God's opportunity, this crisis. That humbled us. It inspired our small group of Ohio Presbyterians that faithful witness of our Lebanese Presbyterian brothers and sisters. The Syrian crisis is God's opportunity for us to live what we believe, to show God's love, to operate in such a way in the world that the love of Jesus Christ is felt invisible. We have enough, my friends. We have enough. So imagine the possibilities that are available to us who have faith. Faith enough to work for God for a different kind of life. Not just a different kind of life for the life of Cincinnati, but a different kind of life for every congregation and community, our families and friends, for all God's people in the world. 
When you demonstrate your faith, when you operate in such a way that the love of God is made visible through you, you change the world. Imagine the possibilities. <laughs>